Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible, if you have one, and turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. I'm not sure if anyone would be helped by a, a pew Bible, but if you would, I don't know if any of the members want to just go and grab it for, for anyone who might need it. But feel free to go in and grab a pew Bible and come back out if, if uh, you or others might need one that you see. Okay? We're going to look at Matthew 11, verses 10 through 20. I'm sorry, verses 20 through 30. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. If this is your first time looking at a Bible, when I say 11, that's the chapter number, that's the big number, and when I say verses 20 to 30, that's the small numbers you'll see there in your copy of the Bible. Hear God's word now from Matthew 11. Then Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! How terrible for you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles... If the miracles were done for um sorry, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will go down to hell or to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that this sweetest of all texts in the Bible and this sweet invitation to come to Christ would be received by us. Humble us before your word like our pastor Ben just prayed. May we be humble and contrite before you. Give us a trembling at your word. God, you in heaven speak to us here on earth, here in Bellflower in this parking lot. So open our hearts to you. Guard us from evil and guard us from distraction, we ask. Help me, Lord, to communicate your text faithfully and help all of us to receive and to feel the relief of the truth and beauty and goodness of who you are in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is one of the sweetest texts in all of the Bible, in all of Scripture, and it feels discouraging for me to have to preach a text this sweet. I'll tell you why in a second. Yesterday, uh, my family and I, we were doing family chapel, and I asked the kids after reading this text and talking about the text and giving a summary of the sermon, I said to the kids at the very end, are you feeling heavy-hearted tonight? Or are you feeling light-hearted tonight? 
We're talking about Jesus relieving burdens, easing our yoke and easing our duties and obligations. So I asked the kids individually, do you feel heavy? Do you feel a heavy burden right now or do you feel a light burden? And it was, it was interesting to hear where they were at and actually led to further discussion with some of our kids who are feeling more heavy burden, more, more heavy laden and heavy burdened this past weekend. Jesus told us here in this text to uh, take his light burden. So I ask you, are you feeling heavy burdened this weekend? Or does your burden feel light this morning? Jesus tells us to take his light burden and he'll take the heavy burden. But if we're honest, we don't always feel that relief, do we? This passage has been true for the whole of our lives, for the whole of our Christian lives. And yet our burdens don't always feel light. And I feel the burden in preaching a text like this that at the end of the sermon, your burden is supposed to feel lighter because of this text. And I feel like, Lord, I can't do it. How do I help the members of our church actually feel a lighter burden? Life is hard. Things are heavy for some of our members right now and some of our friends who are visiting with us this morning. And it feels impossible. It feels like an unbearable, impossible, heavy burden to lift for me to, 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 to help you feel lighter in your life. And yet that's the goal of this text, is it not? That we would respond to Jesus and feel the goodness, the lightness of his burden and the ease of his yoke. I was discouraged thinking about this sermon this past Friday, talking to Ross in our Zoom Bible reading. Last week we learned how John was disappointed with Jesus, remember, because he was still in prison and he wasn't, he wasn't free from prison. So John the Baptist, the prophet, the forerunner to Jesus was disappointed with Jesus. We talked about how the crowds were disappointed with Jesus because he was too serious or he wasn't serious enough. It didn't matter what the message was. They just didn't want Jesus. And the issue for John and the issue for the crowds and the issue for us today is how will we respond to Jesus' claims of who he is? How will we respond to who Jesus claims that he is and what he has done? And even here in this passage, what Jesus has promised to all. How we respond affects our life today and it affects our eternity. Our lives will either end up in tragedy or triumph. For Chorazin and Bethsaida, even Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, their lives ended up in tragedy, in judgment. And so we need to ask ourselves, even this morning as we hear from Jesus, how will we respond to Jesus? Will we come to him in the proper response and triumph? Or will we tragically be crushed under the burdens of our life? So here's the main goal. It's a broad one. It's not just verses 20 to 30, but all three sections here. Respond to Jesus Christ, the God revealer, so that you don't end up in tragedy, but triumph. Respond to Jesus Christ, the God revealer, so that you don't end up in tragedy, but triumph. And we're going to think really just about responding to who Jesus is, the one who reveals God. And so from this passage, you have three sections, and so we have three actions of Jesus to respond to, three actions that require a reaction from us. Here are the three actions of Jesus. In verses 20 through 24, Jesus will judge all of you. Jesus will judge all of you. The second action we, heard, we learned from this text in verses 25 through 27 is that Jesus will choose some of you. Jesus chooses some of you. And lastly, verses 20 through 30, Jesus invites all of you. All right? 
Jesus will judge all of you. Jesus chooses some of you. And Jesus invites all of you. Let's think of these one at a time. And may the Lord bless our meditation this morning by his spirit's power. Number one, Jesus will judge all of you. Verses 20 through 24. Look at verse 20 again with me. In verse 20, it says, Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So here's Jesus going to different towns and he's denouncing them. He's not telling a story of triumph, a story of tragedy. How tragic and terrible for these cities. So he names them in verse 21. How tragic for Chorazin. How terrible for you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Why? For if the miracles done in Tyre and Sidon had been done, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. And in verse 23, and woe to you, Capernaum. How terrible for you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be thrown down to hell. Why? For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. So here, God is making him know, himself known through Jesus, and he's making himself known to sinners. And he's saying, God will judge sinners who do not what? Who don't repent, right? They hear the miracles, they see the miracles, they see Jesus, but if they do not repent from their sins, and if they don't repent of their own goodness and their own self-reliance, then they will face judgment. And this is not new. Jesus called for, for repentance. His very first message, if you get the very first message of Jesus in Mark 1, 14 and 15, or even in Matthew 4, 17, it's as soon as Jesus steps on the public scene, he gets baptized, he beats Satan in the wilderness, he comes out and now he goes public and his first message is this, Matthew 4, 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Here's his message. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The king has come, and I'm bringing my kingdom, and it's, it's almost here. Repent. John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, had the same message. In Luke 3, 8, he says this to his hearers. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. So repent, and if your repentance is real you will bear what? Fruit that is consistent with repentance. There is a kind of fruitless repentance. There's a kind of repentance that some people in church and outside of church say they have. They confess repentance, but it's only with their mouth. It's fruitless. It doesn't change their lives. There's no action change. There's no words that change. There's no thoughts that change. There's no feelings that change. It's just all talk. And Jesus says that kind of repentance... Or John says that that's fruitless repentance. And if you have fruitless repentance, you will go to judgment in hell. If you refuse to repent, or you choose the fruitless path of repentance, a fruitless repentance, you will go to hell. So John calls for, and Jesus calls for, repentance and a fruitful repentance. Now what is repentance? Repentance is turning from something and turning to something else. Repentance is the, is the word turning, really. But you're always, if you're turning, you're turning from some direction and you're turning toward another direction. Turning is, is doing two things at the same time. Turning your back on something and turning toward something else. And when you turn, it is demonstrable. It is decisive. It is resolved. It is determined. 
It's a determination of the person. I am going to turn my direction. You are facing me right now, and you're turning your back to that, to that wall back there. That's a decision you made. The fruit of your decision is the fact that I could see your faces, that you're facing me, and you're turning back your back on those behind you. That is the decision you made, and it's demonstrable. I can see it. It has an effect. Jesus called for repentance, but he didn't just call for repentance. He called for faith. Mark 1.15 says, when he says, um, the kingdom of God has come near. He says, repent and, anyone know that second word? Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Repentance and faith are like the heads and tails of your quarter or your penny or the dime in your pockets. It's the heads and tails. Where you turn toward, that's what you believe in. That's your faith. Repentance is what you're turning away from. So if I turn my back on the world, I will turn toward Jesus. I could turn my back on Jesus, repent from Jesus, and turn toward the world, or towards my job, or towards my family, or towards my church, or towards my reputation, or towards my physical pleasures. So Jesus is calling for repentant faith. Facing and going toward, going forward in some direction and turning your back in another direction. In other words, repentance and faith is about your life orientation. So if you want to know if you're really repentant, ask yourself this question. What is my life's direction right now? Which way am I going? Anyone here struggle with sin? I have a bunch of different accountability groups in this church where we're texting each other. And I was texting one of my accountability groups this week, or actually all my accountability groups this week, just, hey, brothers, temptation, here's sin. Pray for me. Now, I could say that, I can ask for prayer, but is my life direction and orientation actually going away from that sin and temptation? And is it actually going toward Jesus, or is it not? That's how you can know if you're really repentant or if you're faking it, if it's fruitless. Now, here in this passage, everyone is accountable for what they know. You, you hear not only uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, those are, the new those are the towns Jesus is talking to, but he talks about Old Testament towns too. What were those towns? Do you guys remember the text? Sodom, what else? Tyre and Sidon. Let's just think about their sins. What was Tyre's sins? Um, Jose read a whole chapter about Tyre and Sidon, Ezekiel 28. Tyre's sins were that their king was proud in his wisdom. He was proud in his wealth. He was proud in his beauty, the beauty of their land. They had a very beautiful land near the coast. And they were proud and arrogant of their town and their country and their city. And their pride was not only in their beauty and their wealth and their wisdom, it was so much so that the king actually thought he was on the same level as God. That's arrogance, right? And God denounces that and judges that. But then what was Sidon's sin? Sidon's sin was that they treated Israel with contempt. It says that in Ezekiel 28, 24. And God said to Abraham, regarding his old covenant and new covenant people, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. And so when Sidon curses Israel and holds them in contempt in the old covenant, God says, you do that to my people, I'm judging you. So Tyre was judged. Sidon was judged. What about Sodom? What was Sodom's sin? What sin category would you say that they had? Sexual immorality, right? So that would be same-sex sexuality. But it's sexual immorality. Any sex outside of marriage between a, a man and a woman who's married, husband and wife, is sexual immorality, right? And that's a sin, and we could be guilty in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions. And almost all of us are guilty of that, at least in our mind and heart. 
most of us are, and some of us in action as well. And so that was part of the sin that God judged them for. But did you know that their sin was not just sexual immorality? Here's another sin, and I'm going to say this in light of John Lee and my sermon just a few weeks ago. Listen to Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. Now this was the iniquity of Sodom. This is Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Now this was the iniquity of Sodom. And then you think you'd say sexual morality. No, it doesn't say that. It says this. She had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and the needy. So I removed them when I saw this. Did you get the sin of Sodom there? What's their sin? Oppression. Oppressing the poor. Societal oppression. Societal injustice. Unrighteousness. A neglect and ignoring and marginalizing of the already marginalized. Yes, they were judged for their sexual morality. But they're also judged for their societal unrighteousness and injustice. And perpetuation of, of oppression when they're rich... They had plenty of food, and they did not support the poor and the needy. And it's funny because in our culture today, in America, those who are for societal righteousness, social justice, tend to be the ones who are loose on sexual morality, right? And those who are for sexual immorality, that tends to be the conservative group. That's all about sexual purity and sexual morals. But then they, care, they tend to not care about the poor and the needy. And God judges both. You're judged for both. It doesn't matter which side of the social, political aisle you're on. If you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And God judges all sins. So Tyre was in sin. Sidon was in sin. Sodom was in sin. And now Jesus shows himself to Chorazin. He shows himself to Bethsaida. He shows himself to uh, Capernaum. He does miracles. He teaches and he preaches there. And do they receive his word? Do they repent and trust in Jesus? Yes or no? No. And Jesus says, how terrible for you. You will be judged. And will their judgment be on par with, better than, or uh, easier or worse than the Old Testament towns? It'll be worse. Now, why will it be worse? Because who was in their midst preaching to them? Jesus was. You might reject Jonah the prophet, right? You might reject Elijah or Isaiah. But when you have God in human flesh... The Messiah, the hope of all the world, of all sinners, of all ethnic people groups, come to your town and speak to you in love and do miracles that not every town gets to see. And then you see him and you turn your back on him. You spurn that message and those miracles. Your judgment is greater. And so Jesus is saying judgment day is coming. And the more revelation you have, the more responsibility you have. And the more responsibility you have, the more accountability you have. And the more judgment you will incur for turning your back on Jesus. So judgment day is coming, friends. Jesus will judge us for our works. And there will be some who go to hell and others who go to, final, to Christ's final new creation kingdom. And so our church confesses, this is our confession of faith that Peter just professed that he's going to uphold as one of the pastors of our church, and all of you do as members of the church, Article 23, the judgment. This is what we believe as a church. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ, when everyone shall receive according to his deeds. The wicked shall go into everlasting conscious punishment. That's what hell is. The righteous in their glorified bodies into everlasting life in the new creation. Those who go to hell are those who do not repent from their sins and who do not trust in Jesus Christ, but trust in their own 
righteousness. So if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, first of all, let me thank you for coming. We didn't choose this passage because we knew you were coming. We chose this passage before. We just go through Matthew. We're just studying the Bible because we want to know what God says to us. And the Bible is God's word. At least we believe that. And I understand if you might have questions about that. But here's what we want you to know. If you're only here for this one Sunday and you never come again, we want you to know the one message of Jesus Christ. And here it is. God has made you and created you in his image to know him and enjoy him and display him in this world, in your relationships, your friendships, your family, and in your workplaces. But we have rebelled against God. We wanted God's good gifts. We wanted our gifts, and we wanted to do it for our glory. Not to enjoy God, not to love him and display him. We want to use God for our own ends. So if God gives me my family, or if God gives me a job, or if God gives me money, or if he gives me giftedness, I want to use that for my glory. I want to use God for myself, not use these things to help me know and display and enjoy God. And that's called rebellion. That's called sin. And God tells you to repent. Now, the reason God can forgive repentant sinners is because God sent his son, Jesus Christ. The Jesus that we're talking about, his words we're dealing with in this text. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live in this world without ever disobeying God, but always enjoying and displaying and loving God and loving people. And yet Jesus, never sexually immoral, never oppressive towards the poor and the needy, never proud and arrogant about his giftedness, his wisdom, his sinlessness, never holding the people of God in contempt like Sidon did, even though he never did any of that. God judged Jesus on the cross. Jesus hung on the cross and died for sinners, and God damned him. God condemned him. God punished him so that he wouldn't have to punish sinners like you. And Jesus rose from the dead on the third day so that everyone who repents from their sin and turns from their own personal goodness, yeah, you might be better than your neighbors, but you're not good enough for God. Those who turn their back on their own sin and their own goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone, life, death, and resurrection, for their salvation, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You'll be given God's spirit and he'll transform you and live in you and change your life forever now into the new creational kingdom. And you will not be judged in hell forever. That's God's invitation to you. So if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and your goodness and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners like you. Now what I just told you in the last minute and a half is more than what Chorazin got. That's more than what Bethsaida got. That's more than what Capernaum got. They got miracles of Jesus. They didn't know the greatest miracle, that he would die for sinners and rise from the dead. Guess what now? Guess what you know now? You know that Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead. If you know that, if you heard that and you understand my words, you are getting more revelation from God about Jesus than they got. And if you turn your back on this gospel, greater judgment is for you. And if you're, a, if you're a member of this church and you're not really a Christian, there's even greater judgment for you. In Hebrews 10, 26 to 30, read it for yourself later. But if you are part of a church family and you sing the songs of Jesus and you hear the gospel every week and you're reading the Bible and you're tasting of the goodness of Christian love and Christian family and Christian fellowship and then you still turn your back on Jesus, that is the worst of all judgments. It is a dangerous thing to be a member of a church. It's a dangerous thing to be a member of a gospel community like Bethany Baptist Church. If you turn your back on the Lord, there is no other sacrifice for your sins, only a greater judgment. So brothers and sisters, take your repentance seriously. Take Christ seriously. If you're not a Christian, take Jesus seriously. 
If you have more questions, I don't expect you to be convinced in one minute or one minute and a half. I mean, you might be. But if you're not, the best thing you can do is ask more questions about Jesus. Ask your hardest questions. Please, if you're not a Christian, ask questions and think. If there's ways we can help you think about what the Bible says, we would love to do that. You can ask me after or really any of the members of our church, and we'll do our best to help you. All right, what does repentance look like? Do you know the story of Naaman? Naaman, uh, he was a soldier, a general for the enemy army in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5. He, go, he has leprosy. He has a skin disease. And so um, he gets word. I think he's from Syria. And he gets word to go to Israel and to go there because there's a prophet there who can heal him. Go, go see the prophet of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Naaman, the, this big general of the mightiest army on earth, comes to Israel and he knocks on the prophet's door. The prophet doesn't even come out. It's his servant. Can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for the prophet Elisha. Uh, he's busy right now. Can I take a message? I'm the general of the most popular or most powerful army on earth. I demand to speak to Elisha. Sorry, he's busy right now. Can I take a message? Yes, uh, tell him that I have leprosy and that I heard that Yahweh is the God who can heal me. So he says, all right, hold on, wait here. Goes upstairs, talks to Elisha, comes back down. All right, what the prophet said was, you need to go in the Jordan River and dip yourself seven times in there, and then you'll be clean. And Naaman says, what? The dirty Israel Jordan River? Where I'm from, we have better rivers. The Euphrates, the Tigris, we have better rivers. Our country is better than this country. Our army is better than this army. Our rivers are better than these rivers. How dare he say that to me? I should just go back home and go to our rivers. Our rivers are better. And so he's so mad, he storms off. Let's go back home. He takes his whole crew. We're going back home. And the crew starts pleading with him, please, master, please, just do it. I mean, we came all of this way. You might as well just try it. And so reluctantly, he's like, all right, fine, I'll try it. They go down to the Jordan River. He dips once, twice, three times, four times, five times, six times. Seventh time, he dips himself down. He comes back up, and his skin is clean like a baby. His leprosy is completely healed. He goes back and says, I'm going to worship Yahweh now. He goes back to the prophet, wants to give gifts, and no, no, go on your way. But the point here is, there was repentance. His first thought was, I'm turning my back on Yahweh. I'm turning my back on the Jordan River. I'm turning my back on prophet Elisha. I don't care who he is. We're better. I don't need him. I don't need this. And then he repented and turned from that faith in his country and his army and his rivers and turned toward Yahweh and Yahweh's prophet, and Yahweh's word, and Yahweh's river, and was cleansed. That's repentance. It's not just saying I'm repentant. It's an actual turning, and moving, and receiving forgiveness and cleansing. Children, God is going to judge you for your sins too. He doesn't just judge adults. He judges kids too. God knows everything you've done. He knows everything you thought. He knows everything you're feeling. Isn't that scary? That God knows all of our sins and he's going to judge us for all of our sins? That's true, children. He will judge you for your sins. And so God is telling you to repent because guess what? Just because mommy and daddy are Christians doesn't make you a Christian. Just like mommy and daddy had to repent from their sins and turn to Jesus, you have to turn to Jesus. Whether you're three years old, five years old, seven years old, 10 years old, you can become a Christian right now. If you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus who died for you and rose for you, he knows your heart. 
Tell Jesus you want him to save you. Ask him to save you and he will save you. Turn from your sins. He knows your heart and he'll know your direction. Ask Jesus to save you from your sins. And let me say one more thing to you kids before I move on. We talked about fruitful repentance, kids. As you get older, I was talking to one of the brothers this week about this. As you get older, you're gonna get your driver's license. You're gonna get to drive wherever you want and you will be tested whether your repentance is real or not, whether it's fruitful or not. When you are an adult, you will make your own decisions without your parents able to control you. And so if you really want to repent, repent and trust in Jesus now. And then when you become an adult and your parents can't control you anymore, and that day is coming, when that comes, it's going to be up to you to find out whether you really do repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. All right, church family, let me apply this to you and then we'll move on. Church family, before we call others to repent, we must continually be repenting ourselves, right? We're actually in a stage three church discipline in our church with one of our members. If you're going to call that brother to repentance, you need to be repentant yourself. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. You never move on from repentance in the Christian life. You never move on from desperation. You only move deeper into it. When you're praying for Peter Jung to be a pastor and an example to, to the church, the example of a mature Christian is not pretending you're clean and hiding your sins so that you can look at church like you're the cleanest of all the members. That's not maturity. That's hypocrisy. True maturity is repenting from your sins, dealing with your sins honestly, and trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's what God calls us as a church family to do. Okay, so Jesus will judge all of you. That's first of all. So repent. Secondly, second action. If we're going to respond to Jesus Christ, the God revealer. Secondly, Jesus reveals himself to some of you. Or Jesus chooses some of you. He reveals himself to some of you. Look at verses 25 and 26. You have a comment on the Father in verses 25 and 26. And then we have a comment on the Son in verses 27 and 28. So let's first think about the Father and his selectivity. And then we'll think about the Son and his selectivity. So look at verse 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, Father, I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth. Why? Because what has the Father done? You have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you have revealed them to what? Infants, babies. Ross shouts infants as he has an infant in his hand. That's right. He, he hides himself. He hides these things from the wise and the intelligent and the smart and the capable and the reputable, and the powerful, and he reveals himself to infants. Why? Look at verse 26. Yes, Father. Why does he do it? Because what? Because this was your good pleasure. Because you wanted to. So what is God the Father hiding? And Jesus loves it. He's praising the Father for this. What does the Father hide? He has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. So the wise and the intelligent are the unrepentant. Those who think that they don't need God. He hides himself from them. And what is he hiding from them? Here's what he's hiding. He's hiding saving faith and repentance that springs from the truth of Jesus. What does God hide from some people? The Father hides saving faith and repentance that springs from the truth about Jesus, the truth of the gospel. That's what he hides. And then he reveals to infants these repentance-producing things. Infants like Naaman. Naaman became an infant. He was a, a general of the army, general of the, of the military, and then he had to become like an infant, right? He had to say, I'm not wise, I'm not intelligent, my rivers are not better, my army is not better, my country is not better, my gods are not better. I gotta be humble like an infant 
who just takes the advice of others. And so that's what Naaman is. He had to become an infant. What about John the Baptist? He was disappointed with Jesus. Are you the Messiah, Jesus, or are we supposed to look for somebody else? And Jesus says, tell John that I'm the one healing the sick. I'm the one giving sight to the blind. I'm the one making deaf people hear. I am raising the dead. Go tell John that and tell John that the one who's blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What is John going to do when Jesus claps back at him? Is he going to humble himself like an infant? Or is he going to be like, how dare you, Jesus? I'm wise and intelligent. I know. I'm the forerunner. I'm a prophet. I am the Elijah that is to come. I know Isaiah. I know the prophecy. It says you're supposed to bring victory. I'm still in jail. Is that what John does? Does he reject Jesus in his, in his wisdom and intelligence? Or will he humble himself like an infant, like Naaman did, and say, okay, he must be the Messiah because he is fulfilling the, the Isianic prophecies. Why does God do it? Why does God reveal himself to those who humble themselves? You could almost say, this almost sounds bad, but I'll say it first and then let me pull back. You could almost say God reveals himself to the naive. And for those who are so critical and so skeptical and so cynical, he hides himself. Why does God reveal himself to the naive who will take him at his word and not to the critical thinkers? I'm not against critical, as I say, you got to go beyond this. I'm not against critical thinker, thinking. I just said, ask your hardest questions, right? The Bible is a complicated book. It's a simple book. It's a complicated book. We want to think critically. But at the end of the day, it's not about what you think. It's about who you trust. And whatever you trust at the end of the day, actually everyone is simple and naive to something. Everyone is simple and naive to someone. If it's not the Bible, it's something else. One of my family friends would always say to me, PJ, I can't believe the Bible because my teacher in high school said that we can't trust anything. Who's my friend trusting? His teacher. His teacher who told him you can't trust anything. That's ironic. He's like, I, I want to be a critical thinker, so I can't trust anything because my teacher told me that. Oh, so you are going to be naive and infant-like towards your teacher so you can be skeptical towards everything else. Well, God will hide himself from people like that. The only one that God will reveal himself to is those who come to him and are actually going to submit to and trust in him. Why? Why does God do it? Because he loves it. Why does God love it? Because infants are dependent on those who are caring for them. God wants you to depend on him. Why does God want you to depend on him? Because if you don't, who are you going to boast in? Yourself. Who are you going to depend on? Yourself. And that is crazy because it diminishes God's glory and it deprives you of enjoying God in his care and his power and his wisdom. As I see some babies here, right? And as I see Ross here with Eliza, as I see a baby here, it would be ridiculous for the baby, Eliza, to say, I can take care of myself now. I don't need you, Uncle Ross. I don't need you, Mom and Dad. I got this. What would happen to her? She, she might not have the dependence and, oh, look, she's so dependent on her parents. She's so dependent on her uncle. Look at her. Look how weak she is. But she's cared for, isn't she? She gets to enjoy the care and the love of those who are stronger and wiser than her to care for her and bring her up. It's for her good that she depends on them. And that's what God wants for you. That's why he hates and will not reveal himself to those who are arrogant because it, it diminishes his glory and it deprives you of the joy of depending on him. It increases your delusion that you can actually fend for yourself in knowing the truth of God and the truth of this world and how to live apart from God. That's delusional. And that's deceived. Deceived. 
and God will not allow you to walk in that deception. He loves his glory, and he loves you being satisfied and dependent on the glory of his goodness. So that's the father. He chooses who to reveal himself to, and he reveals himself to infants and the humble, not to the wise and intelligent. But verse 27, let's go to verse 27. One more, one more verse on this second point about Jesus choosing some of you. Verse 27 says, all things have been entrusted to me by my father. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Colossians 2, 3 says, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. God has given the son everything. All things are entrusted to him. So that means everything you know about the Father has to come through who? The Son, right? And so the Son even says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. So, well, first, I, I got it backwards. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires or chooses to reveal Him. So the Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son, and no one else can know that knowledge like the Father and the Son. This points to the fact that Jesus is not just a man, he's God. And this kind of begins the, the, the basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Truly God. Three persons, one God. But we don't have time to get into that this morning. Let's get to the point of verse 27 though. The Son, who knows the Father, no one else does, he desires and delights to reveal the Father to some and not to others. Anyone Jesus wants to show the Father to, he'll show the Father to. And guess what? When Jesus shows you the Father, will you become a Christian? Yes or no? Yes, you will. Will you repent from your sins? Yes or no? Yes, you will. Will you, will you leave all and choose Christ? Yes, you will. God the Father and God the Son, in the power of God the Holy Spirit, is so beautiful, is so majestic, is so good, is so glorious, that when God takes the blinders off your eyes, you can't help but want him. You will drop everything to have him. He will become the greatest treasure in your life. You will give up family and friends and money and health and wealth and prosperity and plans. You'll give it all up for Jesus if he opens your eyes to it. If he, if he chooses and desires to reveal the Father to you, he will take the blinders off. And anyone with the blinders off knows that that is true treasure and that is true glory. And you will repent and you will trust in Jesus. And who's the, one who who's the one who chooses to reveal? Is it you? Who's the one who chooses? Who's the one who desires to reveal? The son. So get this. The final decision, whether you know God or not, is whose decision? Christ's decision. The final decision on whether you repent from your sins or not is not your decision, it's whose decision? It's Christ's decision. It is not within your ability to take the blinders off of your eyes. You can't do it. It's like trying to raise yourself if you're dead. The dead can't raise themselves. The blind can't heal themselves. You can't make yourself see. So all you see is darkness. So when you hear Jesus, 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 and all you see is darkness, you will continue to walk in your rebellion and sin. Unless Jesus chooses and desires to reveal the Father to you. The ultimate deciding factor in having the revelation of the Father is not your reception. It's not your humility. It's God's initiative. That's a scary thing if you think about it, right? You are, you are completely at the mercy of God. You have no leverage with God. You have no bargaining chips with God. You have nothing you can do to convince God to choose you. 
you, you and I, we are sinners, rebels, selfish, self-centered, dead, blind, wretched, pitiful, and poor. We have nothing that would make us appealing to God in and of ourselves. And so based on this text, another text, we confess as Bethany Baptist Church, Article 5. Election, that's God's choosing. Election is God's external or God's eternal choice of some persons to everlasting life. Not because of some foreseen merit or foreseen faith in them. It's not because God knew I was going to repent. It's not because God knew you were going to believe. But of his mere mercy in Christ. In consequence of which? In consequence of his mercy. In consequence of which choice they are called justified and glorified. So if you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? Because Christ chose you. Because Christ revealed himself to you. And why did Christ reveal himself to you? Because he wanted to. Because he desired to. Not because he saw that you would trust in him. Not because he saw that you were smarter than other people and you were going to be more faithful and more believing than other people. He chose you because he chose you. If you're not a Christian, or even if you profess to be a Christian, how does it make you feel to know that your eternity is not ultimately hanging on your decision? How does that make you feel? Does this humble you? Or does this anger you? How dare God judge me without opening my eyes and giving me an opportunity? God owes me a revelation of himself. God owes me the blinders coming off. Does it anger you that God says, I don't owe you anything? I created you. You owe me everything. Does this decentering of your life and recentering of God in your existence, does this cause you to lean away from God in disgust and distrust? Or does this cause you to lean into God with faith and hopeful desperation? If you feel any desperation when you're like, I need you, God, please open my eyes. Please take off the blinders. Please reveal yourself to me. If you're leaning into God, that's a good sign of God's grace in your life. That's a good sign that, God, that Jesus is already doing something in you. The sovereign choice of God either reduces us to childlike, humble receiving or wise and arrogant resisting. Where are you at as you hear about Jesus choosing? Childlike, humble receiving or wise and arrogant resisting? It's God's choice, not yours, ultimately. And yet God calls you to choose to repent. So we just sang it. I could not love thee. We, we sang this to God. We prayed this to God. I could not love you. I could not love thee so blind and unfeeling. Covenant promises fell not to me. Then without warning, desire or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. I have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom or powers to employ. Yet in thy mercy, how pleasing thou findst me. This is thy pleasure that thou art my joy. How does God become your joy? Because it's God's joy to open your eyes to make him your joy. So friend, receive Christ's supremacy in your salvation and hope in the good news. Don't reject God's supremacy and power in your wisdom or in your intelligence and in your pride. Let me talk to you Christians for a second. 
church member, Christian, do you feel discouraged that people are not coming to Christ and repenting from their sins? I do. Let me encourage you. There is hope for the non-Christians that you're praying for and that you're loving and you're gospelizing. You know why? Before you converted to Christ, do you know anyone who prayed for you to be saved? Do you know anyone who thought, man, Carlos will never become a Christian. Ross would never become a Christian. Sam would never become a Christian. Tasol would never become a Christian. Do you know anyone who thought that about you? I mean, you were blind, deaf, and dumb like all of us, right? We're all dead in our sins, right? And, did, and people praying for you, people loving you, people gospelizing you. And look, now you're here as a member of, your church, of our church. There will be new members in this church and in other churches five years from now. Some of them might even be preaching behind this pulpit who right now are rebelling against God. Because Jesus will reveal himself to some, won't he? There was hope for you. That's how you became a Christian. Brothers, sisters, there's hope for those you're praying for. There's hope for your neighbors. There's hope for your coworkers. There's hope for your family members. There's hope for the unreached nations and unreached language groups of the world. There is hope for them because Jesus delights and desires to reveal himself and reveal the Father to some. So pray with confidence. Preach with confidence. Engage your neighbors and love them. Invite them to Christ with confidence. Not because he'll save all, but he'll save some. And that's good news for us. Lastly, so Jesus will judge all of you. Jesus chooses some of you, so humbly receive that revelation. And lastly, Jesus invites all of you. Now, I have 15 minutes, and this is a whole 60-minute sermon in and of itself. I'm sorry that I can't go deeper. You can ask me for it later, and maybe I'll do it on a Sunday night some other time. Actually, no, that same 15 minutes I have now. I won't do it on a Sunday night. I'll have to do it on a Sunday morning some other time in the future, which will almost be the exact same outline, just deeper in each point. So I'm not going deep right now. I'm sorry. This is like the sweetest passage, and I have to just cover and canvas it in, in these last 15 minutes. So here it is. Jesus chooses some of you, and yet Jesus invites all of you. What does he say in verse 28? Come to me. What's the next word? Come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, Jesus, you're not choosing me, so I don't have a choice. No, Jesus is saying, all of you, if you're burdened and, 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 and heavy laden and weary, come to me, all of you, and I will give you rest. So who is he inviting? He's inviting the weary and the burdened. So you might say, well, he's not inviting me. He's not inviting you if you choose not to be invited, Right? This is your choice now. I talked about Jesus' choice, which is the ultimate choice in the last point. Now let's talk about your choice. You do have a choice. And here are the people who choose not to be invited. Those who say, I got this. Those who say, I'm okay. Those who say, I don't need help. I can handle this on my own. I got, I got this. I can handle my burdens. I can handle my life on my own. I don't need other people. I don't need Jesus. I don't want to be a burden to others. Not only can I handle my own burdens, I want to handle other people's burdens. But I can handle my own. Thank you very much. If that's you, then you're not weary. And if that's you, then you're not burdened. And if that's you, you might overlook this invitation. Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? You are burdened. You are weary. You might not realize it. So don't select and choose to be outside of this invitation. Jesus calls all of you and invites all of you to himself. And what does he invite us to? Look at verse 20. Um, let's see here. Chapter 11, verse 27. 
Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So what's the goal? What's the final thing God wants to give you? Rest. Same thing in verse 29. He says, take up my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle, or I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So you're going to get rest. That's what, that's what we want. We want rest. What is rest? We want rest in the end, we want rest now. But let's think about rest in the Bible. The first time there was rest, when God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. Then in the Ten Commandments, he said, um, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And what are you supposed to do on the Sabbath day, Israel? Rest. Rest from work. And then, when they're going into the promised land, God says that through Joshua, they're going to enter the promised land and enter into God's rest. And then they got into the promised land. And yet, in the Psalms, later on, in, in the Psalms, the psalmist says, you will, today if you hear his voice, um, repent and come to him. If not, you will never enter God's rest. And now Jesus comes and says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And in the end, when Christ returns, we enter in the new creational kingdom, a new earth with new bodies to love him forever and we will have our final rest. That's what Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, that there's a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. But we want not only the final rest, we want to feel rest now, don't we? We want to feel relief now. We want some relief from our burden. We want some ease from our yoke in this broken and sin-filled world. So how do we get this rest for our souls? Three steps. I told you this was a mini-sermon, right? Three steps to, um, to get rest for your souls. And it's here. Verse, in verse 28, what's the action? What is Jesus telling you to do? To what? Come. And in verse 29, you got two more actions. That's step one. What's step two? Take up my yoke. And what's step three? Learn from me. So you got three steps here. Come to Jesus means trust in him. Come by faith. This is your initial faith in Jesus or your refreshed faith in Jesus, if you're already a Christian, that you have fresh faith in Jesus. You hear him and faith comes by hearing, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I trust you again. So that's the first step. Secondly, take up my yoke. That's resolve. So you have faith and now you have resolve. I will follow Jesus. I will obey him. I will deny myself daily, take up my cross, and follow him. I will obey all that Christ commands me. And if you're going to take up this yoke of responsibility, this means you're going to have a responsibility to relate to God properly, to deal with yourself and your internal thoughts and feelings and emotions and directions personally. You're going to have to take God's commands in the way you relate to other Christians and non-Christians, which means if you're a Christian, you join a church. And then with your church family and with your neighbors, you're going to obey God with those relationships. And then with how you deal with creation. You can obey God in the way you deal with the rest of creation. That's taking up the responsibility of following Jesus in obedience. Okay, so you have faith. You have resolve, decision, I'm going to follow Jesus. And third, you have learn from me, which is constant communion. Because life gets hard and this is how it gets easy. Jesus calls us to commune and fellowship with him regularly. Worship him. Be discipled by him. Grow with him. Walk with him. He's your companion on your journey. And that's where it gets easy. You trust in Jesus. Then you get this yoke that he says is easy, but it's heavy. Because that means you've got you to obey all the commands of the Bible. And yet Jesus says, while you're doing all those commands, walk with me. Learn from me. Talk to me. Listen to me. Let's hang out. Let's spend time together and be influenced by me. So these three things, coming and taking up yoke and learning from him, those are three steps to returning to Jesus and recentering your life on Jesus. Now let's answer this question, why? Why should you do this? Why should you return to Jesus? 
Why should you come to him, take up his yoke, and learn from him? Why? There's two levels of motivation here. Let's go with the first level of motivation, then we'll go to the deepest level of motivation. The first level of motivation is um, not only that he'll give us rest, but in verse 30. Why should we take up his yoke? Why? What does verse 30 say? His yoke is what? His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. So why should you come to Jesus? The first motivation is because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, the yoke, I said, is obeying all of Jesus' commands. And that does not feel light. <laughs> that feels heavy. That doesn't feel easy. That feels hard. But 1 John 5, 3 tells us, you could turn there if you want, if you're fast enough, or you could just listen. 1 John 5, 3, it says this. This is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. His commands, all his commands are not a burden. Why? Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. So why are his commands not a burden? Because God has given us new life. He's given us the new birth. We have been born again. We have a new nature that wants to obey God's commands. And what's the victory that has overcome the world? Our what? Our faith. We believe that Jesus is good, don't we? We believe Jesus is better than the, than the temptations of this world. We believe Jesus' claims are truer than the claims of this world. And if we believe in him, that is the key to victory, and that makes our burdens light. That makes his commands not burdensome. Because when we believe it's good, then we want to do it. And when we believe it's bad, we don't want to do it. Right? So for me right now, I believe that eating kale, putting kale in my milkshake is good. Because I believe it, it's easier for me to do it now. It wasn't always so easy for me, Ben. But it's been easier these days as I'm getting older. I know I need it. So because I believe it, it's easier for me now. But if I don't believe it, it's hard. So I can't have onions on my burger. That's hard for me because I don't believe that it, it's good. It's not good. It's not good for my body. It's not good for my taste buds. It's not good for my breath smelling. It's just not good. I don't believe it. It's hard. When, when you believe something, it's easy. And when you don't believe it, it's hard. So that's the key. Now, I was reading this with Ross, and he gave me permission to share this. We were doing our Bible reading on Friday about this. And I was looking at Ross. I was feeling burdened. I'm like, Ross, do you feel like you're uh, light burdened or heavy burdened? And Ross was like, I feel heavy burdened. I was like, brother, what's on your mind? So he gave me a list, and I, wrote, I just remembered them, and I wrote them down. Here was Ross's burden on Friday. Pressure of leading a wife as a newlywed, as a new husband. And, and trying, to, trying to lead as the one who has the responsibility to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's heavy. Caring for his wife in her pregnancy. Fighting personal depression. Feeling drawn to easy entertainment as an escape. Schoolwork. Preparing for seminary. Feeling the burden of raising funds and financially providing for his family. Is that pretty heavy? For Ross on Friday? He was feeling crushed by these things. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you're obeying me in all these things. And guess what? My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Stop complaining, Ross. Lord, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> just tell me to stop complaining. Like, how does this feel easy? How does this feel light? Let me try to give you some con a conception of this. It's easy like, it's an easy yoke when you want to do it, like telling Alyssa Pastores, 
who's a Hamilton fan, hey, Alyssa, you have an obligation to buy the $150 Hamilton tickets because Lin-Manuel Miranda and the original cast from Broadway is performing at the Pantages um, in socially distanced ways um, in, in the next week. And so you have to, you are required, you are burdened to buy those tickets and go watch the show. Does that feel like a burden to her? No, it doesn't feel like a burden to her. That's light. That's easy. It's like a loving parent seeing their child who's hurting and, and fell down and got hurt really bad, and the parent picks up the child. Is that child heavy in that moment when, they're, when, they're, when the loving parent's heart goes out to their child? Is that, is that heavy? That's not heavy. Not when you're overwhelmed by love. You want to draw the child in, right? It's like my, telling my kids, you have to watch WandaVision tonight on television. You have to. Your dad is commanding you to watch WandaVision tonight on television. That's not a burdensome command for my kids. They're begging to watch it. And we're saying, no, you got to wait till family day. That's what it's like with all of Christ's commands. All of them are good. None of them are burdensome. But when we don't believe they're good, they feel burdensome. They feel heavy. They feel hard. So it's light and easy because of two things. Because one, we were made, <clears throat> we were made and designed for obeying Jesus. And that's the easiest way of living life. Secondly, our other option of disobedience is actually hard and heavy if you really think about it. <clears throat> disobedience is harder. Living in disobedience is harder and heavier than obeying Christ. Why? Sometimes we feel like certain rules from the Bible are restrictive and burdensome. But is a tree free and unburdened when it's lifted up from, the, from its roots by a hurricane? Is a fish free and unburdened when it bites on the hook of the worm and the worm and gets a hook and it's freed from the water? to live outside of the water. Is the fish free and unburdened? Are you free and unburdened when you're skydiving at 10,000 feet and you reject the parachute because you don't need it? You want to be free and unburdened. Is that freedom and burdenlessness? Or is the tree free and unburdened when it's rooted in soil? Is the fish free and unburdened when it's constrained by water? And is the skydiver free and unburdened, falling at 120 miles per hour from 10,000 feet in the air because he has a parachute on his back? Where is the real freedom? Where is the real burdenlessness? Where is the real lightness? And where is the real heaviness? St. Augustine said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Because we were made for God. That's where true rest is. And why in Jesus? Why is true rest in Jesus? Let's close with verse 29. He says this. Take up my yoke and learn from me. Why? Because I am what? Lowly and humble in heart. God loves us. And so he's lowly and humble in heart. Where was, is Jesus lowly and humble? This is great when you have a master who's lowly and humble. Because Jesus did not come to serve or to be served, but to what? to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When you have a master who's trying to use you, you don't trust them. They're using you, right? But when you got a master who's coming under you to serve you and to bless you and to make you happy and to lift you up and to ease your burdens, that's the kind of master you want to serve, right? And so that's Jesus. He's lowly and humble in heart. It says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death. He became a man. God the Son came to earth, took on human flesh. 
and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And not only that, when we're proud and arrogant and wise and intelligent in our own eyes, Jesus had the ultimate childlike faith. Do you remember where and when? Here he is in the garden, the wisest of all men, the most intelligent of all humans ever to live, in the garden of Eden, pleading with God, Father, take this cup away from me. Take the cross away from me. Please, Father, there has to be another way. And the Father says what? No, there is no other way. And Jesus, in childlike faith, not wise, intelligent in his own eyes, but in childlike, humble faith, said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the heart of childlike faith. That is lowly and humble and gentle. Because Jesus, why did he go to the cross? Not ultimately for selfishness, not even for selfishness, but for his bride. Christ humbled himself, lowly and humble and poor and human and killable, right, mortal, to hang on a cross and bear the judgment of God for our sins. He never distrusted God. He trusted God, humble and lowly. And now he tells you, in your burdens, to trust him. He took the heaviest burden. He was damned on the cross for you. You don't have to bear the, the burden of your judgment. Christ bore that heavy burden for you, that heavy yoke. Now you can carry the light yoke of his Holy Spirit empowering you to obey him for the rest of your life. So come to Jesus. Resolve to obey and follow Jesus and constantly commune with him and learn from him in fellowship and in prayer. Why? Why should you respond to Jesus? Because Jesus will judge all of you. Jesus chooses some of you. And Jesus invites all of you to return to him because he is lowly and humble and has come to serve you for his glory. If you don't come to Jesus, if you don't respond to Jesus in faith, your life will end in tragedy, not triumph. You will have burdens that you cannot bear, especially the judgment to come. You will be weary and arrogant and maybe even ignorant of your real burdens, like a fish out of water. And in the end, you'll be judged in hell. But if you respond to Jesus and come to Jesus in faith and humility and repentance, you will have humble joy. You will live according to your design and purpose. And you will find present and final rest for your souls. Come to Jesus. All who are weary and burdened and enjoy his companionship and follow him in all his commands and you will find rest for your souls. And that is not tragedy. That is the triumph. Father, take these words now. Hide them in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Lord Jesus, we love your lowliness. We love your humility. You have come to serve us. You wash our feet. We ought to be washing your feet. You come and cleanse us and die for us. Help us to trust you in our burdens. Help us to take up our yoke of obey your yoke of obeying you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.